I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Well, Dean in the... <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a symptom of it being extremely smoky here in Toronto right now. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, in the immortal words of Matchbox 20 is Rob Thomas and Santana. It's a hot one. <laughs> yeah, and in the immortal words of um, someone else, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I actually feel pretty bad about it. I don't feel fine at all. <laughs> Having a lot of respiratory issues, honestly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right, folks. This is a uh, Magnificast summer vacation Bible school episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> between uh, between a big a big life changing uh, move that my family is undergoing and. Uh, the fallout from the Canadian wildfires that Dean is suffering uh, this week. We're going a little bit light. Um, we're not, so we're not going to be reading any big books to you, but we are going to be talking about a lot of uh, interesting cultural commentary around Christianity. It's going to be great. But before we get there, Dean tells me he has a game that he wants to play. He wants to do a bit to get into the spirit of things. And I'm, I'm so excited for it. That's right. It's some, it's a real summer vacation kind of bit. Um, I've been doing my summer reading to prepare for school this fall. Um, the bigger vacation Bible school that never ends of life. And, uh, (laughs) this one, the bit is called pastor. I hardly know her. And uh, I can tell you're pretty excited about it already. Um, I'm going to go ahead and here's how it works, Matt. Uh, I have been doing a lot of research. It's true that we didn't read any big books for the pod, but I did do my own reading outside of class, uh, my own homework, and I did read Wikipedia today um, for about 20 minutes. And uh, here's what I've done. I have created uh, three profiles of popular televangelists in the last century, in the 20th century. And for each of these individuals, each of these pastors, I've collected two facts about their life um, that may give you a hint as to who they are, or maybe some fun trivia that you can use at a party later, and also the titles of three books that they've written. And for each person... Yeah, I know. I'm being pretty generous here. For each person, I'm going to give you three choices of who it could be. Um, and uh, I'm going to have you guess between those three which one, uh, which pastor it is based on that information. How does that sound? Um, it sounds good. I feel like this is something I can do. What, what am I, pl- what am I playing for here? 
That's a great question. What are you playing for? Hmm. You know, at first I thought you'd just be playing for the love of the game, but uh, I can tell that that's uh, <laughs> that's not going to no. swing it. Um, let's see. <laughs> As a good Christian, what can I promise you? That's basically meaningless. Um, another crown in heaven, I guess. Yeah, that's going to be it, Matt. For each one of these, you're going to get another crown okay. in heaven, and uh, I hope that you get at least three. Um, that's great. Now, now we're talking <laughs> some real prizes. That's right. Real prizes, real metaphysical prizes. I'm going to give you, let's see, should I give you the names at the beginning or the end? Which do you prefer? I'll give you a little bit of agency here, Matt. Um, at the end, I think okay. is, is the best. Great. Okay. Go to the, uh, so here is the first, uh, two facts for this first pastor. Um, number one, he's married or was married to Adelia Dee Dee Elmer, a fashion model and beauty queen in the Miss Ohio State contest. Okay. So I'm sure that's signaling all kinds of uh, important <laughs> synapses firing in your brain. Uh, number two, this person had business dealings in Africa with former president of Liberia and convicted war criminal Charles Taylor and former Zaire president Mobutu Sese Seko. This could be literally any evangelical right now. Uh, you're not helping me. <laughs> yeah, but this one was married to Miss Ohio State. Um, and uh, three book titles that might help you sort of uh, finish the circle in your brain. Um, the first is from 2009, a recent title. It's called Right on the Money, Financial Advice for Tough Times. Okay. 1984, the title Answers to 200 of Life's Most Probing Questions. And... 2003 bring it on tough questions candid answers okay i oh, who and who are my choices here all right your choices here are going to be uh jimmy swagger billy graham or pat robertson the topic of a recent magnificast episode this has got to be jimmy swagger this is my that's my guess all right final answer for the crown in heaven jimmy swagger you would be wrong it was pat robertson oh no my yeah, crown. Your Pat crown. Robertson. He he was married to. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah, he was Fine. married to Miss I'll, Ohio State herself. <laughs> I should have known. Um, all right, I'll I'll get the next one though for sure. I think so. I believe in you. All right. Uh, moving on to Pastor Number Two. Pastor, you hardly knew her. Uh, the first fact: being investigated by the U.S. Department of Justice, this great man of God used the controversy <laughs> to raise more funds from his audience, branding the investigation a witch hunt. And asking viewers to, quote, give the devil a black eye. Okay. I think I might know who this one is already, but Great. keep going. All right. Um, here's uh, one that'll bring back a fan favorite already from the game here. On CNN, Jimmy Swaggart stated that this pastor was a cancer in the body of Christ because of a sex scandal. In February 1988, Swaggart became involved in a sex scandal of his own after being caught visiting prostitutes in New Orleans. Just a little bonus trivia for you there. Uh-huh. And three books that this illustrious author has published in 1976. Move That Mountain. You can imagine Ty Pennington saying that title. Um, in 1996, <laughs> I was wrong. And in 2014, Time Has Come, How to Prepare Now for Epic Events Ahead. And your three choices for this particular pastor are going to be Jerry Falwell, Jim Baker, and Kenneth Copeland, the man with the biggest jaws in ministry. Oof. Okay, so Jim Baker was my first initial thought. 
You got it. You got one crown. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, thank uh, God. You can enjoy that one in the afterlife. Whew. That's great. At least it's not going to rust uh, rust and beat the <laughs> moths here. So that's great. Exactly. It's just like that uh, that beer that underage people could buy from Nathan Fielder's Great Liquor Store in that one episode of Nathan For You. <laughs> um <laughs> Okay, (laughs) rounding it out, here's the last one. A bit of a cleaner, uh, squeakier um, uh, round. This person was included on Barbara Walters' list of the 10 most fascinating people of 2006. Former presidential Mm. candidate John McCain described him as his favorite inspirational author, and his family attended an Easter breakfast hosted by President Barack Obama at the White House in 2010, so a bipartisan favorite. All right, okay. you got that. So here's number two. According to the Houston Chronicle, his church's income was $89 million in the year ending March 2017. More than 90% of that oh was raised from church followers, and barely 1% of its budget went to charitable causes. Big yikes. Not good. And uh, three book titles. From 2014, You Can and You Will, Ain't Undeniable Qualities of a Winner. From 2012, I Declare, 31 Promises to Speak Over Your Life. And from 2011, Every Day Friday, <laughs> How to Be Happier, Seven Days a Week. Okay, so the the bipartisanship of it all did throw me off, but I'm pretty sure I knew who this one is. Can I, can yeah. I guess this one without yes. even without even the Okay, A Called Shot. This is like from Half Court. Yep, this is worth two crowns. It's Joel Osteen? It's Joel Osteen, exactly. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, my God. That's going to make up uh, your first uh, miss on Pat Robertson. I'm going to give you all three crowns by the end of this. Uh, great job. Uh, <laughs> thanks for playing, Matt. Pastor, I hardly knew her. It turns out you you did know a couple of them, and I'm impressed. You did a great job. I can't believe that Joel Osteen, he was at the White House with President Obama? That seems so off-brand. I know. Can you imagine? <laughs> it? Easter, I hardly knew her. <laughs> That's right. Um, can you imagine at Easter, like, being like you're the president of the United States, you could spend you could invite literally anyone in the world to your house for Easter and choosing Joel Osteen <laughs> and his family. What a weird choice. No, I can't imagine. No, I can't imagine that at all. That sounds awful. It's the worst choice. Yeah, and favorite uh favorite inspirational author of POW John McCain. <laughs> That's such a bizarre smattering of things. Um well, uh, Dean, a great game. Thanks for putting the effort in. Uh, thanks for all these great crowns that are up in heaven now. I'll be sure to check in with St. Peter on my way in and be like, hey, I did win the game down on Earth. <laughs> Please, <laughs> can you hand over those crowns? <laughs> and, and he'll know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. He will. He will. Um, all right, Matt, that is a great game. But what are we actually talking about this week? Because that's about all I've been able to think about all day. Yeah, I'll tell you about the greatest game, this podcast episode. I was just kind of reflecting on some things I've seen in the past week, some life experiences, uh, some chickens coming home to roost, if you will. And I was thinking a lot about the claim that evangelicals often make um, about the claim that evangelicals often make and also their enduring paranoia (laughs) about being true to something called biblical Christianity. Uh, Dean, I know that you probably share this, <laughs> these intrusive thoughts as well, but, uh, when I was growing up as an evangelical, the question that was always on the tip of my tongue is, you know, is, is this thing biblical? Is this a, is this a biblical girlfriend mm-hmm. that I have? Right, right. Can't find her in there, can you? Am I, <laughs> she's not in the Bible. 
evangelicals are always asking these questions. They uh, they want to make sure everything's done by the book, and uh, by the book I do mean the Bible. Um, you know, you've got to have things like a biblical marriage, a biblical dating life. You got to have a biblical expression of masculinity or femininity. You got to have biblical politics and so on. Biblical ska but really, music. You got to have. Well, that's yes, that's true. You do have, <laughs> to have biblical ska music. Um, but you can see these types of. I think you could call this a lot of different things, right? This like sort of like tendency towards wanting to find whatever whatever impulse or whatever niche in your life you want to find something about it in the bible to use as like your guiding light or whatever so that's true you can call it a lot of different things but to me it sounds like it feels a lot like a paranoia a type of fear like an intrusive thought that people have over and over again they can't quite escape from um i don't know if that's quite right but <laughs> that's all i could think of as i was starting to kind of like work through this idea in my brain um, but you see these types of like fears or whatever you want to call them manifest themselves in Christianity most acutely when it comes to all of the culture war topics that Christians on the right seem to find themselves in the middle of these days. Right. Um, whether it's, I don't know, LGBTQ stuff or, um, <laughs> you know, like, uh, questions around abortion or healthcare or war and politics um they always want to find something that's biblical about it right that's the way that uh evangelicals want to justify basically everything in the entire world um but all these assumptions about what is biblical and what isn't biblical all stem from like a particular understanding of culture that is really just not true um evangelicals have this assumption or this like model of how they think culture works um that suggests that um Christian culture ultimately stems from like theology first and not culture first, um, you know, or, or to put it in, in Marxist terms, like for evangelicals, the base is uh, theology and the superstructure <laughs> is culture, <laughs> but, but that's <laughs> a cursed, a cursed sentence that I just said for sure. <laughs> but I think this is uh, I mean, evangelicals don't know how culture works for sure. And I guess that's kind of the interesting thing to me is that they have it exactly backwards, right? Rather, um, rather than the assumption that Christian culture it, it ultimately stems from theology, it's like the other way around. That Christian theology is is downstream from culture and from political economy. I think is is maybe the point. I think I want to talk about and how and how that works out in, uh, in evangelical Christianity. I, I mean, I don't know exactly what I'm trying to get at here, other than just trying to like turn over a rock and, and see how this whole thing works because it's been like plaguing my Twitter timeline. So uh, this is a little bit. Uh, a little bit uh, selfish, I suppose. So in this episode, we're going to put on our cultural theorist hats. Mine's uh, my cultural theorist hat is like a it's like a big Dr. Seuss hat. Okay. I don't know what yours looks like, Dean. Mine is let's see for cultural theory, probably a big backwards cap. OK, that's fine. So we're going to put on our cultural theory hats. We're going to talk about the ways that Christianity gets constructed culturally and also like the sleight of hand that makes it appear as something that is primary rather than secondary to, you know, political economy and so so on. Uh, the goal of this episode is really just to talk about the ways that culture, religion and politics are all tied up together in some really complicated ways um, and uh, the ways that Christians, especially evangelicals, want to like oversimplify that relationship. Does that all make sense? I think so. We'll we'll make it make sense. I mean, I guess um, we can get get into it all in a minute. But um, does that particular phenomenon of like this has to be a biblical thing? Does that 
is that a part of your experience as a Christian as well? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was uh, an evangelical in high school and shortly thereafter in my my detour in Catholicism, uh, yeah, I, I think describing it as an intrusive thought actually makes a lot of sense to me, specifically a person who does have OCD, <laughs> because um, I think that it actually probably did manifest that way kind of for me, which is to say that it's a real anxiety about whether or not your life is patterned um, in a biblical way and uh, yeah, having that be sort of the, the controlling decision-making calculus that you, that you have. And uh, I also remember it feeling really kind of strange to be in that transitional phase of like, okay, I don't only listen to biblical music because I kind of like these other bands, but like, can I do that? Or can I, can I like find a way to biblically argue that actually if it's a secular band, there's still some kind of Christian meaning that I can derive from it. You know, there's a sort of obsession with uh, making your life conform to a pretty like on the one hand naive, but on the other hand, actually very complicated idea about what the Bible is and and what it does or how it should direct your life. So yeah, I mean, it, it uh, certainly like forces you and forces your brain in some weird directions when it comes to encountering cultural products around you. Yeah, I think that makes sense. The other part of it that uh, sticks out to me is like being kind of important and being more than just about like poking fun at like the weirdness of evangelicalism is the ways that I think conservative politics and like right wing politics use this particular construct of biblical Christianity as a bludgeon to try to um I think keep people in line, you know, like when it comes to orthodox theological beliefs and the reproduction of capitalism and heteronormativity and so on. I, I this is like, <laughs> this is like an extremely stupid way to, I think maybe encounter this in the world, not saying this person's stupid, just like, <laughs> it's just dumb. But, um, you know, like scrolling through Twitter or whatever, I'll see somebody like Mason Menenga who is going out of his way to stir up the beehive that is like weird conservative Christians <laughs> And, uh, you know, he'll say something funny and they'll fall for it <laughs> and start arguing with him about something stupid. And I guess it's just it's uh, to me, it strikes me as like maybe a little bit more important than I think, because um, Christians on the right will ultimately say, you know, um, well, if you're not really following this particular type of like, you know, fabricated biblical Christianity, you're not really a Christian. You're leading people astray, you know, whatever, all this kind of stuff um, as a way to you know, try to safeguard their faith in a particular way. And, but also, um, keep a certain type of social order. And I think it's just like dubious <laughs> and it's dubious. It's bad. It's like a disciplinary measure by right-wing Christians. And I feel like if we maybe just understand it a little bit better, it's not like we can like disarm them or we can argue better with them on Twitter. That's not really the point. It's just to like, maybe understand like what's happening a little bit more. So we could just know. <laughs> just understand it a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's also worth talking about, though, because there are some interesting wrinkles to the Christianity and culture conversation. And in some ways, this is, this is not like a recent or even evangelical um, invention. You know, it's like as as old as Christians have been thinking about the world around them, they've been running into that problem. So you have even somebody like Augustine in City of God trying to figure out, you know, how exactly do Christians kind of sojourn through the world? Like, the city-state is not our home, but also, like, he's a bishop in Rome. What's he supposed to do with that? Or, 
even the the kind of age-old question of like Athens and Jerusalem is kind of a you know how much chocolate do you get in your peanut butter situation um like Christians <laughs> have have always had a hard time like parsing that out and you get the sort of monastic response too to the the Christian embrace of the city that when Christianity becomes more mainstream and you can practice it in an open way and in, in an urban area there are a variety of other Christians who take the the opposite tack and they go out into the desert and kind of reject everything there is to to do with um the the very idea of a kind of Christian civilization so i think it's like evangelicalism is doing that in a different way <laughs> you know they're not like they're not being like the desert fathers or something, but they are maybe one bizarre and specifically very capitalist kind of manifestation of that tension within Christianity. Mm -hmm. So I think it's worth talking about that. And I think also there's sort of a, there, there's a left wing way of making this point that I think also has some problems, but gets you somewhere kind of interesting. I mean, we've talked about this on the show in the past before, but one thing that I find so fascinating reflecting on my own evangelicalism is that it kind of like forced me out of itself at a certain point or like self-destructed because of this very binary that like if Chris, if being a Christian is supposed to take you out of culture, then shouldn't it also take you out of like being a Republican and even being an American or whatever it might be that your devotion to Christ and your desire to be truly biblical, you know, the Bible's a weird book. And if you really tried to live by it, like, you know, you'd probably be something like, I don't know, a bizarre form of anarchist or, <laughs> or something, you know? So, uh, yeah. yeah, I think there's, there's a progressive way of kind of making that point too. So all that to say, I think it's good to talk about the theme, not only to understand evangelicals being weird on the internet, but also to try to understand something that's a feature of Christianity itself and kind of like, breaks off in both directions. I think that's right. Yeah, it does break off in both directions in in some positive and some negative ways. And, and now that we're like, you know, 20 minutes into the episode, maybe I can parse out a quick hypothesis about this even <laughs> that, uh, you know, it, it's not that they're I, OK. So evangelicals might say that uh, that if you're not a biblical Christian in the exact way that they say that you should be you know, you're a cultural Christian. You're just, you know, picking up what you think is worth picking up and leaving what you think is worth leaving behind. And you're always kind of making it up. And I think, uh, I think that that's just Christianity, like whether you want it to be that or not. <laughs> I know that's like, maybe that's a big, a big chunk to bite off right here, but I think, I think that's it, right? Uh, Christianity is always ty a type of cultural construction. You're always taking things. You're always leaving things behind. There's no such thing as like, you know, uh, evangelicals love to talk about cherry picking through the Bible mm -hmm. and that's just what you're always going to do. Sorry. <laughs> you know, you're never going to take it all with you. And, uh, even if you could, you wouldn't want to, I remember when I was like, I think kind of coming through evangelicalism in a weird way, there's a book that was really popular for like a summer that was called like a year of living biblically yeah, yeah. or something. I remember that. It was, it was this like, it was a wacky book about this guy who was just like, you know, living really strictly by Levitical laws or whatever it was. And, you know, the point was like, you can't actually do this. <laughs> um, and, and even that would have been like a particular interpretation of what the idea of biblical meant. Right. And I, I, I don't know. All this to say, I think that we're always doing this, right? We're always kind of picking up different measures and hermeneutics by which we were reading our tradition and what, and that we were like coming to some kind of conclusion about what is really Christian or what is worthwhile Christian or something. And um, I feel like if you can kind of accept the 
postmodern point that you're always constructing the discourse and you're always kind of living in tension with some parts of the discourse that uh, I feel like it's just a lot more honest, right? Mm -hmm. It's more complicated for sure. And there's more to parse out. Um, but it is, I think, a more honest way to live your life. Yeah. Um, quick aside, by the way, speaking of that book, The Year of Living Biblically or whatever. Um, so when I was in uh, evangelical college in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is an extremely evangelical place, uh, there was this guy who was like our campus pastor kind of um, or something like that named Ed Dobson. And he had been a pastor at some other big church. And then he got a, I don't remember, some kind of degenerative um, disease. But he, like, in light of that situation, decided to kind of experiment with his Christianity in some interesting ways. And uh, the big scandal um, in our evangelical campus is that, so he had, like, been inspired by that book, The Year of Living Biblically, and he decided to do it himself as well as a pastor. So he did the year of living like Jesus and he did all this wild stuff, right? He ate what you're supposed to eat in the ancient, you know, texts or whatever. And he didn't eat the stuff you're not supposed to eat. He like wore clothes without mixed fibers, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the big scandal is that he did vote for Barack Obama uh, in that year. And everyone was like, <laughs> are you kidding me? So anyway, um, just a really incredible performative example of exactly this problem. <laughs> like, here's a guy yeah. who literally is like, I'm going to try to live as biblically as I possibly can. And I guess my conclusion from that experiment is like, I should vote for Barack Obama. <laughs> right, right. That's so funny. Um, not Like, whatever. Uh, voting for a Democrat is just is whatever it's there's nothing there's nothing to it i guess is how i feel <laughs> yeah but it's funny that that's that's the scandal um great well okay we can talk about more of this i think in a minute but i think what's interesting you know you were just mentioning this how how this is like a, a trend that can kind of cut both ways right on the one hand there's the right-wing interpretations of what being biblical means and um surprise it means you know being <laughs> being a really stuffy uh and lame capitalist who you know <laughs> has to be straight and has to be sort of like conforming to particular gender roles and a particular type of sexuality and so on and that sucks and and is annoying but there's also like uh, another way to cut it where uh, it may be a more a more radical, a, a more, more radical type of like true, true Christianity, right? Or, <laughs> or authentic Christianity. And in uh, this one, I, you know, I, I like it better. So I so I feel less critical about it. But you kind of see something something similar, right? Like even um, I know like a, a really important sort of line of flight away from evangelicalism for me was the whole idea of like red letter Christians like the Tony Campolo and like mm -hmm. Shane Claiborne kind of thing. The idea that you're going to really take seriously what Jesus said and like there's a type of, you know, true Christianity bound up in that right? get type of authenticity in your faith where you're really paying attention to this particular social ethic. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you're still interpreting that social ethic through the 21st century capitalist world that we live in. And of course, like people like Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo, they're like maybe a little bit more upfront about that particular dynamic, but still uh, you're after the same thing and you think you're getting that true authentic Christianity or whatever, but really what you're doing is, you know, still constructing a particular type of religious uh, orientation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's the, the other piece too, is I, I respect the desire to sort of, pull that understanding of biblical Christianity away from the right. And it does create some interesting things like, uh, you know, um, for all his faults. And I guess there are many <laughs> of someone like Shane Claiborne, the idea of doing something like uh, an intentional community or a kind of weird 21st century monastic experiment or whatever is like 
a thing that is at least sort of an interesting expression of that point. Um, but it's true that, you know, one one problem with uh, that approach is it fails to sort of recognize how like how cultural Christianity is always going to be in a way that it's almost like if you don't really embrace that point, you're bound to end up in some really weird problems down the line, which, uh, you know, the red letter Christians have had to deal with, like especially around things like gay marriage is the one that I always think about where. You know, they have often been like, well, we're true biblical Christians, which means on the one hand, we really care about the poor and immigrants, but also like we're either going to be quiet on gay marriage or be extremely late to uh, to embrace it one way or another. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it creates all these bizarre problems because there's still this sort of assumption that at the bottom there's a biblical Christianity that's pretty easy to figure out. And you just have to kind of live that out and, uh, yeah, creates, uh, <laughs> create some really weird, like moral compromises down the line. Yeah, totally. Um, you also see these things too. I mean, like liberation theology is, is not free from this particular dynamic either. Right. Like, um, some, something like the, we're always talking about the gospel and soul and Taname, this book, um, this collection of like conversations that, Ernesto Cardinal, a very revolutionary Catholic priest, has with these uh, farmers in Nicaragua, and they're having conversations about, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian, what's happening in the Bible, and then also like, what's happening in Nicaragua, and there's a type of Christianity that does emerge around that. I mean, you can kind of, you can see different types of Christianity that emerges from liberation theology as well that is like, you know, has that authentic feel to it that has like a a type of seriousness to it that is lacking from other types of Christianity. And I think that's totally cool. And I'm again, (laughs) extremely invested in that whole type of thing. And I think that's an expression of faith that I think is really important to me. Uh, But at the same time, it's also, it's a, it's a particular construction of the faith. And I think like, fine, good, (laughs) you know, Um, (laughs) it's, it's one, it is a construction of faith and I think I like it. Well, something I really think that is interesting about the Gospel and Salentaname on this point in particular is that they kind of embrace that it's a cultural Christianity in a way that yeah. uh, evangelicals and other Christians can't, right? Like when you see them reflecting on the the Magnificat or something, you know, the Song of Mary, they just like have no problem like deliberately importing it into a Nicaraguan context and in ways that are like not probably exegetically accurate or whatever, but that's not really the point of doing it. And you kind of see Ernesto Cardinal playing with that sometimes, like occasionally his editorial voice in the conversation tries to pull them back to the text. And then other times he just sort of like lets it run, you know, and they they say what they say and kind of make the text their own. And I think there's actually something more honest about that. Like, it's not so much about finding the, you know, the interpretive kernel of the text and then applying that in a one to one way to your your situation as though that were even possible, but rather kind of figuring out what the text is trying to activate in its own time and then figuring out how you might activate the same kind of impulse in your own context. So I feel like you know, there's something very different there as opposed to maybe what the kind of progressive expression of, uh, you know, of trying to figure out what's Christian and what's cultural Christian or whatever. There's something different happening there because there's kind of an embrace that like we're going to just create a Nicaraguan cultural Christianity in a way that is pretty cool. Yeah, there's definitely a playfulness in it when it comes to Cardinal and, you know, the whole the whole gang. They're talking about it in uh Insultaname that's different. Um, I think that's an important thing to point out. Um, well, great. 
I, I think that we've got it on the table. We've got the idea out, at least where, where our position is, right? We, we're we saying that, uh, you know, authenticity is a hard thing to maybe, like, nail down like exactly, or, like, a biblical Christianity is a hard thing to nail down. But what we are saying is that there's, like, a type of construction that's happening here with all these types of faith. And it doesn't, need, it doesn't mean that, like, you know, well, I mean, obviously, I think the right-wing types of, <laughs> the right-wing expressions of faith aren't very good, and we should probably do something about them. But <laughs> what I'm saying is that, like, you know, uh, what we're doing here is, like, we're, we're muddling through, right? We're taking our faith tradition and we're trying to do something with it that is, like, meaningful in the world. We're trying to make it produce a particular type of affect in us. We're trying to make it, you know, come alive for us in different ways. And I think that's positive. But to me, it seems important that we know what we're doing when we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, does that seem right? I think so. And I think it's it's, like... There's something kind of true about the impulse to say that Christianity isn't identical with culture in a way that's also very important, especially in a capitalist culture. Like, I want to say that, yeah, there's something in the Bible or something in the person of Jesus or in the Christian tradition or whatever we might say that sort of escapes the culture that we live in. And, uh, you know, like it's a... Because it's from, it was produced in a different cultural time. You know, the Bible's produced in actually many, many different <laughs> cultural moments. Um, but it, it's kind of speaking to something that's out of step with our own culture in in many different ways. I think there's something important about that because you you don't want to be like, well, at the end of the day, you just kind of accommodate to the spirit of your age and you make Christianity yeah. whatever everybody else is saying. Like, <laughs> you know, that's kind of liberal Christianity, which I think is not very good. Um, but yeah, like trying to figure out exactly sort of how much do you let the Bible and Jesus and the Christian tradition disrupt your culture and in what ways I think like the key is to be like, you're just always negotiating that. Like you're never really like nailing it down or being like, here's Mm -hmm. the, you know, that's the evangelical temptation is to be like, here's the static set of things that are just always true throughout all time about Christianity and, you know surprised that what turns out to be always true is something like a handful of weirdos made up in like the late 1800s. So like, it's important to maybe figure out like (laughs) how that, that cultural context that we're always uh, producing and creating and so on sort of plays back and forth between like the moment that we're in and maybe the, the future and the past that Christianity is like calling us into to, to sort of like disrupt whatever's going on right now. Yeah, that's a really helpful thing to say, because I guess I don't want to make it sound like, you know, Christianity can just be like whatever you're doing and you can kind of <laughs> shape it and form it however you want, um, because that's that's not what I'm saying. I guess like the, the thing the thing that's hard to kind of wrap your mind around is that this is maybe a philosophical point. And I'll try not to put it in a particular jargon that I'm apt to putting things in. But like with Christianity, there's like, you know, a set of potentials within it. There are contours to it that exists already there are like i don't know like there are uh, a there, there are a set of things that exist within it that you have to just kind of come to terms with and like accept or reject and like play with and uh some things that are you know more negotiable than others but still uh you have to figure out like what you're going to do with each of these components or each of these parts as you kind of figure them out and uh you know decide what your faith tradition is going to look like or how it's going to push and pull you I guess what I'm trying to say is <laughs> this is a stupid, a stupid metaphor that I've used on our discord a lot of times and people <laughs> don't like it on our discord. And I, 
I'm going to double down on it. <laughs> <laughs> but it says if you had a Sega Genesis and you have a Sega cartridge and you have to put the Sega cartridge in the Sega Genesis and you can't put a Dreamcast, you know, you can't put a Dreamcast disc in there. <laughs> and that's what Christianity's like. And uh, that's all I can think of ever. So fine. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. Uh, I mean, it's it's always tough too to kind of negotiate like what is a, I don't know, like Christianity On the one hand, you want to say Christianity is kind of whatever people who call themselves Christians end up like doing. Like there's a part of me that wants to say that. And that's a tension that we talk about on the show a lot because it's important to recognize, for example, that, you know, the like the people who uh, instituted like a colonial vision of a slavery based society in what would become the United States, like those people did that with christian theologies in mind and like if you really want to understand that history you actually have to really also understand the christian kind of ways of thinking that that led to that kind of world a specific kind of christian world and to say that they're not christian would be disingenuous you know so like there's part of me that wants to Mm -hmm. be like for that reason we have to be like yeah christianity is kind of whatever we say about it for better or for worse and on the other hand too like john brown and nat turner like they're also christians out there doing it differently you know and we're all kind of part of one big, disgusting, bizarre family that is not not very functional. Um, but, you know, that's uh, the other on the other hand, you you also want to be like, but there's something maybe like I'm still a Christian person, you know, so I want to be like there's something in that tradition that I think is not exhausted by like whatever Christians say and do with it. There's something that I specifically resonate with or the community that I'm part of kind of resonates with. So, and I think that too is always like an undecidable thing. It's like a negotiable thing, or as Marika Rose puts it in the intro to every episode that we have here, you know, you're kind of always betraying some aspects and being faithful to other aspects of Christianity. And you're just kind of like stuck with that problem, I guess, always trying to to figure out what you're going to betray and what you're going to be faithful to. Totally. Yeah, that's great. Marika, she's right about everything. Um, well, okay. We're wrestling a lot with our particular, (laughs) our particular brand of Christianity and like how we're parsing it out. And that's cool. Love that. I think that's really great of us to do on a podcast, a very vulnerable moment, perhaps. Um, I think the the maybe more analytically useful though, than us just like (laughs) waxing philosophical about it for a minute is like exactly what right-wing Christians are doing when they're doing this kind of thing. You know, like, um, you know, we're just talking about, or I was just talking about, like the types of potential that are within the Christian faith, and like you know, what are you betraying? What are you not betraying? These, these kinds of ideas, and like, what is it that right wing Christians are doing when they are like constructing a type of biblical Christianity? And I think that's a really important question. Um, you know, we were talking about Nicaragua, we we're talking about other sort of revolutionary situations, or even just kind of more progressive liberal situations. But Christians in the U.S., I think, have to come to terms with the idea that they are, whether they like it or not. Uh, I mean, they like it secretly. They are hege- <laughs> a hege- <laughs> they're a hegemonic force with it, with a, like a lot of power in the world, right? Um, right wing Christians, they've got a lot of power. They don't want you to think that though. They want you to think they're just like small little beans out there floating around, but they have <laughs> an immense network of power. Um, and I think that it's really important to parse out exactly how that is and like what that looks like. But I think the the thing that's kind of interesting about Christianity and especially evangelical Christianity that's, you know, conservative and like right leaning is that like um, those structures of power 
are really hard to square with the story of Christianity or the story of Jesus, who is, you know, always talking about the importance of the poor and the oppressed, you know, um, and even in the the epistles in like the New Testament, you're always hearing about the oppressed church. You're hearing about martyrs. You're hearing about, you know, people who are suffering for their faith. Right. And evangelicals in the U.S. have to like kind of come to figure out ways to come to terms with that, because like that's like an essential feature, I think, of Christianity, at least like um, not an essential feature of Christianity, but it is like, you know, a, a really important part of the Christian story to tell. And I think it's also like maybe like one of those legitimizing stories within Christianity that like, you know, if you are really a Christian, if you're really living biblically, you're going to be persecuted because like that's what always the Bible is telling you. Right. So evangelicals in the U.S., they always do this thing where they have to invent really complex conspiracy theories about their own persecution. Um, and I think that a place where uh, somebody who talks about this in a really helpful way is Tad DeLay. He has a book called Against What the White Evangelical Wants. You might remember we've had him on the show a few times and we've talked about this book a handful of times. And I think it's probably one of the best explanations of like what's going on with evangelical brains. Yeah. Um, in, in the book, there's this one part that always kind of springs to mind whenever I think about evangelicalism and like the this like the construction of this narrative within it. Um, and uh, there's a chapter in his book where he talks about uh, DC talk. If you're familiar, maybe this is before the the time of some of our listeners, but DC Talk, a really a really important contemporary Christian um, rap rock band. Um, when I was in high school, uh, there was a book that they wrote called Jesus Freak, mm-hmm. and it's like, I, I'm sure Dean, did you have this book? You probably uh, had it. I did not have it, but uh, it was on the coffee table of all of my evangelical friends. Okay, yeah, great. Well, I had it for sure. Um, <laughs> it was also on the, the coffee table, all my evangelical friends as well. Um, but it's just like a book that's like, um, it does, the book is kind of a lot of places at once, but it does tell you a lot of stories about like the martyrs of Christianity. Right. And it does, um, a lot to do, it, it does a lot of work to try to explain to you the ways that Christians are still persecuted. And one of the central stories that, um, Tad talks about in his book, but I, I remember it's from the book pretty explicitly because uh, this was also, I think, part of my teenage experience um, was about the possibly fake story, more than likely fake story about Cassie Bernal, a student who was murdered at Columbine, um, which is, you know, uh, a pretty uh, important event, uh, a school, a school shooting um, who uh, she, she was murdered because she allegedly had like expressed her faith to the gunman and then she was shot for it. Right. Um, and the way that Tad tells the story is really interesting because there's like some um, details missing to that story. And maybe it's, you know, who knows if it's true or if it's not true. But um, that particular story is actually really important, or at least it's it's a really it's a really important narrative in the building up of the evangelical persecution complex that like there will be these situations in your life where you will um, become persecuted uh, for your Christianity, maybe even to death. And that uh, because of the particular nature of Christianity, you should be like excited about that, right? Like you should be happy to become some kind of martyr. And um, that's like an extreme, like the, the Columbine example is extreme, obviously. And again, I don't know if it actually happened or not. I mean, who, who could know? Um, But I would say that like Christians will tell these types of stories 
and do all types of mental gymnastics to seem like they are people who are persecuted because that particular vibe is like so important to the psyche of evangelicals um, because it, it it like it's legitimizing, right? It means that like, if you're being persecuted, then you must be doing something right because the world hates you so much because you're, you know, you're such a good Christian. Like that's what's that's what's happening. Um, when in fact, that's not really what's happening at all. It's just like people hate you because you're an asshole. <laughs> you're being a weirdo on Twitter. Um, but I, I mean, I think that's really what a lot of the culture wars around like uh, trans people or, um, you know, other LGBTQ topics or um, whatever. They, they come down to this particular dynamic, right? Um, evangelicals uh, have built a particular type of Christianity um, that follows extremely <laughs> recent uh, types of family norms and values and uh, ideas about sexuality and gender. I mean, and also some some older ideas. I'm not saying they're all <laughs> very recent, but you know, like what I'm, what I'm saying is that they reproduce like capitalist uh, values about the family and sexuality and gender in um, and, and then they, you know, want to uh, they want to paint the picture like as if they uh, the Christian family is under attack by queer people or something, which is, Obviously, just not not true, but uh, that's the story that you end up hearing. <laughs> I mean, maybe true in a certain sense, but like good. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, I, I think that's true. The uh, the persecution complex is there with respect to cultures. So Christians, evangelical Christians, will sort of build a, a world in which um, culture is out to get them, even though Christians are the ones who are uh, enjoying the the highest you know seats of political power in those cultures. Um, but there's kind of an interesting, uh, I don't, it's not a counterweight because I think it's intimately tied to the same thing, but maybe in the opposite direction where like culture is also that place where, um, you know, there, there are temptations in culture. There's things that you could do that would be very fun or like completely innocuous, like getting a Starbucks cup that doesn't say Merry Christmas on it or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. on the one hand, or like, you know, a film that you shouldn't watch or music that you shouldn't listen to. Things like that. And uh, on the one hand, they're kind of like these corrupting influences. So there's still the it's almost like a it's like a sort of a metaphysics, a metaphysics of persecution, like everything could be persecuting you, not even not just mm -hmm. other people, but like the the world itself, the things you encounter are kind of persecuting you as a Christian or calling your faith into question. Um, but the reason I say it's kind of almost like a counterweight is that it's like those are also things that could be super fun, <laughs> but like you're just not allowed to do it. And it's the fact that it could be fun that makes it that much more important to resist for Christians or evangelicals. Right. So uh, you, you know, the reason it's a temptation to listen to the great radio bands is because everybody loves them. And uh, if they didn't love them, it would be easy to resist that temptation. So I think there's also a lot going on there about how like, the resistance to being a cultural Christian has a lot of sunk cost built into it because it's like, not only mm. are you trying to resist this culture that you think is persecuting you, but also like if you stopped doing that, you'd have to admit that you just like missed out on having a ton of fun for a very long time or like, <laughs> you know, you're suffering. And so you want everybody else to suffer around you. I mean, evangelicalism is basically a Christianity of like misery loves company. I think that's sort of the the theological premise at the bottom of it. And I think that that has always been a bizarre thing to me about, I don't know, evangelical engagement with culture, that it, it's a persecuting thing. It's also just like a ton of fun that you're not allowed to have. It's like those and, and that itself feels like persecution in a really weird way.
I think that piece is actually really important because there's a certain way you could construe this and you could be like, yeah, well, evangelicalism is just like uh, a really hyped up type of like asceticism or something, right? Like mm-hmm. um, it's about fasting or like, you know, rejecting certain types of things just like monks do or the desert fathers do or whatever, <laughs> but that's not quite what it is. Mm-hmm. I think that, you, I think that parsing it out as like misery love loves company is, is better because it is, I think, less a type of asceticism and more of a type of sadism. Like, yeah, yeah, you want people right. to suffer alongside of you <laughs> and you want to watch them suffer just as much as you are or something. Mm-hmm. Um, or um, or maybe even to uh, t- taking an extra step, like you want people to think you're suffering. You want to see people suffering, but you secretly are not suffering. You're right, right. Actually, <laughs> indulging. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're the Jimmy Swaggart who's like, I hate this guy for, yeah. I hate uh, Tim Baker for this uh, sexual sin or whatever. And then he's like caught with all these prostitutes in uh, New Orleans. Uh, it's exactly that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. There's like something like exciting about the anxiety that you're producing in your own life <laughs> because like uh, you're getting one over on all your friend on all your mm-hmm. friends when uh, <laughs> you're having premarital sex with your girlfriend. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, I mean, it creates obviously all kinds of really toxic uh, problems in people's brains and in our societies and so on. But I think the other thing that's really weird about the conversation is like, so evangelicals are opposed to cultural Christianity in one way. But what they, you know, what they can't really understand, as we've been saying, is that their Christianity is also a, a cultural Christianity. It just happens to be like, you know, Western American imperialist Christianity. So it really yeah. is about like hyper defending a specific kind of cultural Christianity, but without recognizing that that's what it is. So it's doubling down on cultural Christianity in an ironic way because it's, you know, incapable of kind of seeing what it is. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, I, you don't have to look very far within a lot of those particular types of like circles of evangelicalism to just like find the, <laughs> the incredibly constructed lines. I mean, I, I don't know. People say that we'll have this argument on Twitter and I think there's something to it. And uh, you know, biblical scholars, maybe you can chime in here, <laughs> tell us we're wrong or whatever, but you know, like people always talk about biblical marriages or whatever. And you know, of uh, uh, the norm, uh, which is which is such a complicated idea because, like, the Bible is like, uh, you know, it's a collection of books that have taken place. They're they're set in like time periods, thousands of years apart, and like the particular types of like cultural construction around marriages are different in different parts of the Bible. Like sometimes it's polygamy, sometimes it's not. Sometimes you're marrying your brother's wife or whatever (laughs) you know it's like there's like clearly no really like one definition of like what that type of relationship should look like or could look like um but like you know just like you said a minute ago like uh evangelicals have just found a way to tell that particular story so that the um the normative type of marriage in the united states (laughs) you know looks just like it does in the bible or whatever Mm -hmm. um it ends up being such a <laughs> such a weird storytelling process of uh, self mythologization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that also sort of feeds into the dynamics we were just talking about too, with the kind of like sadism that is at the heart of evangelicalism, or like <laughs> bumming yourself out to bum everybody else out. You know, you get these kind of 
I don't know, strange, um, strange kind of cultures of like everybody sort of pretending they're having a good time, but actually nobody's having a good time. I mean, at least that was sort of my experience of evangelical church. Like you get a handful of like basically normal people and that's good for them, I guess. Um, But for the most part, I feel like you really get a lot of people who are kind of driven neurotic by their own bizarre theologies and everybody's kind of pretending that it's totally fine, you know, and there's a kind of tragedy to it because by imposing that sort of um, obsession with like the capitalist model of the nuclear family or, you know, old timey gender roles or whatever, all that kind of stuff, like it does produce suffering in families like that's the kind of thing that I think is really fascinating about uh, the the Marxist opposition to the family or even, you know, Jesus's opposition to the family uh, in his own ministry in a different way. Like, I think there is this kind of recognition that uh, getting too attached to a family model can create lots of pathologies and problems internally. But evangelicalism has to sort of double down on it and maintain on it in ways that are, you know, open to lots of abuse and lots of other kinds of problems that uh that arise out of that so there's this sort of like imposed suffering that really emerges in it i mean tad is really good at talking about how evangelicalism is uh i don't know just like a big bundle of like pathologies i guess (laughs) i think he's right to to do that Uh, but it is also like such an incredible vehicle or vector for like self-inflicted pain that i think is really challenging and the hardest part about it is because it's all sort of premised on the point that, like, this is biblical Christianity as opposed to cultural Christianity. It's, like, really difficult to, uh, you know, pinpoint, like, where's the source of that pain or that anxiety? And I don't know. I have a lot of sympathy for evangelicals, and maybe it seems like kind of condescending sympathy or, like, you know, uh, yeah. a, a yucky kind. But and, and maybe it is that also, like, to be honest. But... Uh, there is some sympathy there of being like, dang, it's got to suck to be so sad all the time for literally no good reason. It's true. Um, <laughs> I feel like I feel maybe the same way. It's uh, it's condescending. Probably for sure, because of how annoying <laughs> evangelicalism can be. <laughs> but also uh, there's there's also sort of like a, a, a tinge of like, uh, I don't know. I've been there. I know what that's like. Please yeah. don't do that to yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, all right. So we're running out to the end here at the end of this hour. I think, uh, how could we end this conversation, Matt? I think there's something important about like affirming that all Christianity is cultural Christianity and also being like, and it's not like reducible to culture. And maybe the, maybe that's kind of the key. The thing that we're always talking about in this podcast is like Christianity is just like a huge, um, (laughs) a huge set of stuff that you can, kind of mess around with and maybe not like maybe it's not infinitely plastic or something but you can do quite a bit with it and people do very bad things with it in a right-wing way but uh maybe we could do something on purpose in a liberating way you know build the build the revolutionary culture that we need such that we have a christianity that could be sort of more adequate to that or vice versa maybe have a christianity that's so like uh radically opposed to the culture that we have now that it could maybe call into being some other kind of cultural way of being i don't know matt help me land this plane like what am i what am i circling around here yeah no i think i think you're on to the the right point right christianity is a sega genesis and you're putting the game (laughs) genie in it and then you're putting the sonic and knuckles uh connector on it and then you're also putting uh sonic 2 on there 
And the point is here that like we can be intentional with the ways that we cultivate our particular expressions of faith without fear of like doing it wrong. I think that's probably okay. I I guess like to me, what seems important is that um, Christianity is like a long history of people just like kind of trying things and like trying to be faithful, right? Like trying earnestly to be really faithful in like what they're doing. And sometimes you get it really wrong (laughs) and sometimes you don't, but like um, I think that like there's something really important in the experimental type of feeling of that. I, I mean, I know that's kind of like, non-committal even in, in a weird way I, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that like um, sometimes you get really cool things out of it and here is a very bizarre example um, Dean and I we've been thinking a lot about the Franciscans lately because of this like book project that we're working on um, but at the same time of the Franciscans there are these other folks that were <laughs> important theologically in like the uh, middle and southern parts of Europe called the Brethren of the Free Spirit. And you'll see all kinds of other, like, um, sometimes the movement is just called, you know, the Free Spirit Movement. But anyways, it's this idea that um, your soul is, like, <laughs> is a part of God in this really particular way, right? And if you can strip you can strip all of the awful stuff about your soul away, you can see God, like, reflected in yourself. And I think what's interesting about that, though, is that I mean, whatever, an interesting theological idea, whatever. Maybe there's some like helpful ideas in there for you. I don't, I have no idea, but all that say that it was like a movement of people who are like trying to figure something out um, with regards to their faith in a particular type of community. And then like they, <laughs> they end up getting like squashed by the Catholic church because of anti-clericalism. But I guess all I'm trying to say here is like, because, because uh, the, uh, the free spirit movement walked like Franciscanism could run, I guess is kind of <laughs> what I'm trying to say, <laughs> but, I, but we never, uh, but, but that's how Christianity is, right? People are always trying things and they're trying new expressions of faith. And I think that there's something kind of positive in that searching and experimentation that I, I particularly like. And I think that it is, uh, is worth our time. Yeah, I agree. So be the cultural Christianity you want to see in the world, I guess, is the the moral I think, of this one. I think that's good. It's a good moral. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, folks, we're in the we're in the summer, the summer times. We're summer vacationing. Um, we've got a lot of big moving parts in our lives. So the lock-in podcasts have been a little bit short we haven't we haven't been doing them i guess i'm trying to say um but we're still in the discord and if you subscribe to the patreon you can get into the discord and have conversations with us and uh that'll be cool someday things will return to normal hopefully when the summer's over um that'll be great um anyways subscribe for patreon or don't just you know whatever you want to do is fine um but we would love to see you in the discord it would be a great time to hang out um our intro music is by mario armstrong our outro music is by the logical spoon we'll see you next time Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. 
keep your hoods up, where you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have. 